Let's pray. Lord, tonight as we look at Exodus 14, 21 through 15, 21, my prayer is that we wouldn't wait till the end to see the part about our redemption and our song. Um, I, I pray that as we open the text, as we climb into it, that you would help us by the work of the Spirit to, to understand you more, to understand ourselves more, to understand the impact of our sin, to understand our need for redemption, to understand our freedom in Christ, to understand the response of a sacrifice of praise, the response of a song. Uh, Lord, you are very mighty, and, and it appears in these chapters and in the way you deal with your children, you clearly want to make that known to generations. So I, I pray that we would be a generation that would uh, marvel rightly at your might. I pray that we, sitting here, would be generations that, um, that see what you have done in the past and anticipate what you are going to do in the future and are mindful of what you're doing right now. Uh, my prayer is that, that you would be glorified tonight as we consider uh, the greatness of our God. Please guide our time. We thank you for Jesus. I'm thankful that all the promises of God find their yes in Christ, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, we looked at Exodus 14, where over a million, some say two million, uh, Israelites are coming out of Egypt, and they've been there for how many years? What? I thought someone said 25. It's like, nope, it's not quite right, but it was a good guess. Um, yeah, for over 430 years. And, uh, and so they're coming out of Egypt, and what do they have in their possession? Yeah, the spoils of Egypt, all the gold, silver, jewels, nice clothing. They plundered them verbally before they left, which is a weird way to plunder. But when God's involved, that's what happens. And they're on their way out, and they um, are not too far away. And the Lord didn't let them go through the land of the Philistines. Why did he not make it so that they would go through the land of the Philistines? Yeah. Yeah, we see a real tenderness in God where, you know, some of us may have just said, hey, suck it up. At least you're free. Just go that way. And we wouldn't have had much thought towards the tenderness and the gentleness that needs to be shown to God's people. And so what we see is God being very tender, very gentle, like a, like a shepherd, like he tells us to be, exhibiting the fruits of the Spirit, um, gentleness, patience. And he says, you know what, there's war in the land of the Philistines, and essentially I don't want my people to be worried with that right now, and so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have them go this way. But the other way would lead them where? Through the wilderness to what? The Red Sea. That's right. And so uh, God is setting the stage for them to be completely dependent upon him. That's his aim in this. He doesn't want them to be slightly dependent upon him, but completely dependent upon him. And so what happens ultimately is the, the Egyptians say, hey, what is this that we've done? These slaves that we have had serving us for over four centuries, uh, we just let them all go and we let them take all our stuff. And that was a bad idea. It's a bad business decision. It didn't work out for us personally. Let's go and get them because it appeared since they turned from going this way and went this way, it appeared they were people just sort of wandering around in the desert. 
And so uh, Egypt took their chariots. It's, it's sort of like coming at them with their best and to overtake them and say, you know what, We're, we don't want you to leave. We decided to change our mind again. And what we see is Israel at the Red, here's the Red Sea, here's the wilderness, and there is the uh, encroaching army of Pharaoh on chariots, angry, ready to uh, bring them back to Egypt and maybe kill some of them in the process, likely. So my question is, how did Israel respond to that scenario? Say that again. Panicked. Why did they panic? Yeah, like this little thing they forgot about, like what had God just done? Just throw out a couple of things. Yeah, now of blood, frogs, flies, gnats, winged destroyer, firstborn of Egypt dead, and they're leaving. And so they've been very cared for by God. So question, if Israel rightly feared Yahweh, how would they have responded to the enclosing army of Pharaoh? If they rightly feared Yahweh, which they obviously didn't at this point. There would have been trust. And with trust comes, what are some other things that come with trust? Confidence, absolutely. Contentment. Right action. Courage. Those would have all been good things for Israel to do. Boldness, faithfulness. Uh, but that's not what they did. They, they whined and freaked out a little bit. And what did we learn last week about our freedom in Christ from the recently freed Israelite slaves? How, how did that inform our freedom in Christ? It does not come without what? Like when you accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, is everything good after that and nothing goes bad and there's no money problems or relationship problems or health problems? Like it, our freedom in Christ does not come without what? Suffering, trial, fear, uh, hard times. Um, it's not without trial. What can we learn from Israel about sober-mindedness? Is there anything we can learn from them? Say that again. Yeah, we're very much like them. And how are we very much like them? What? We forget. We go from, God, you're so good. We're freed to, ah, this is all going to be horrible. We're about to die. He brought us out here to kill us. Were there not enough graves in Egypt? I'm, I'm completely freaking out. I don't know what God's doing right now. And it just is absolutely not movement in proper faith. We, are, we can go from sober-minded and rejoicing to our circumstances changing to forgetting everything God has done in like a minute. That can happen in one minute's time with news that is not what we hope for. And so we can quickly slide into grumbling and being overwhelmed when we shouldn't. 
And Israel could have drawn on a number of promises from God if they were acting in proper faith. They could have said, oh, he made these promises to Abraham about us being numerous. He made these promises to Moses about us being led out of Egypt, and we'll worship him on the mountain, and we haven't done that yet, so clearly we're not all going to die. There's things that they could have drawn on to help them move in proper faith. Look at verse 21. That's where we're going to pick back up in chapter 14. I'm going to read 21 through 31, and as I read these 10 verses, I want you to really imagine the drama. Like, climb back into this. A million people are silent. What's just happened in verse 19, the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near uh, the outer all night. And so what we have here is a picture of Jesus lighting the way, covering your rear, and you got a bunch of Israelites standing silent, ready for what's God's way of, of getting us out of this? What does God have in store? And we considered last week, I believe it was in Corinthians, that there's no temptation where God doesn't provide a way of escape. And so, uh, imagine the drama, a million people silent, standing firm with the impending doom of a mighty army. Imagine what Moses has heard from God. What did God tell Moses to do? With the staff. Hold it up over your head. We're a very civilized people. This is a really bad circumstance. God, what are we going to do? I want you to take that stick and hold it over your head. And trust me, how many of you would have laughed at God? How many of you would have actually said, okay, let's do this? He's been told to hold the staff over his head. And just picture this, a a million or two million Israelites standing there, the army's coming, wilderness on the sides, Red Sea right here. There's really no running. There's no escape. That's a bunch of people. A stampede would be bad. It's quiet at this point. And Moses lifts his staff, and a great wind comes down. And the waters of the Red Sea part. Now, there are a bunch of scientific explanations that explain, well, this was just a shallow part. No, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says a great wind came down and the waters parted and the result underneath was dry ground. And we'll read later in Psalm 106 that the ground they walked on through the Red Sea parted waters was like that of the desert. So it wasn't just a normal natural anomaly that they just luckily were at this part that wasn't too deep. That's not true. What God says is he told Pharaoh, or he told Moses, (laughs) he told Moses to lift his staff A great wind comes down and the waters part. The ground dries up and Israel moves forward on dry ground. Now, this actually happens. This happened. This isn't a fairy tale. Don't think of this as a kid's story. We're like, oh, that's that's cute. That's, That's sort of poetic. No, this is very real. This is the might of our God using Moses to raise a stick over his head to part the water so that there would be a way of escape for his people because he will preserve them as he has redeemed them and freed them. For a moment, consider the proper ordering of God's people. There is no way for this to have happened without good leadership throughout the people. Consider that for a moment. There's no way that this could have happened without good leadership uh, throughout the people. 
You don't just have one guy yell real loud and more than a million people move forward without trampling one another. There must have been good order here and a respect for each other, even when they were just wigging out together. Now there's a, a way out, and there must have been good order. Turn over to Hebrews eleven twenty nine and keep your finger in Exodus. Hebrews eleven twenty nine says this. Now this is one of those. It's hard to make this transition, but we have to make it to understand the text. Hebrews eleven twenty nine. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same thing, were drowned. So how did they cross the Red Sea? By faith. Now, this is faith. It's not always pretty, but it's faith. God is very patient, even when we are faithful. God is patient, but he expects obedience, and he always provides the way. Israel moved forward in faith. What I want you all to see is, Sometimes when we talk about faith, we take some of the sloppiness of life out of it. It's like, oh, we're very faithful, and, and uh, we just we moved in faith. They were just screaming and freaking out like a minute before. And I believe moving in faith, I, when I try to picture this whole thing, and it says the water's congealed to the side, I don't believe it was actually just a, a quick part and let's run. I believe if they're walking in faith, that means it was probably, likely, a wall of water. This opened, step one. Open a little more. Step of faith. Open a little more. Step of faith. Moving through that, knowing this could cave in at any moment if our God does not keep it the way he has made it for the time being. So there's movement in faith here. I don't want y'all to see this as, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? Oh, the whole, look, I see a long road of open sea. This is easy. We're going to go that way. And everyone runs. There was orderly movement, and it was movement by faith. Egypt moved forward outside of faith, and the result for Egypt is that everyone died. So I'm thinking that Moses must have really come off as the man to those watching. Can you imagine? I mean, climb into it, climb into the story. Uh, uh, like a million or two people uh, we're just going to die. And Moses goes, and they escaped. And you would imagine Moses looks awesome right here. Like everyone wants to high-five Moses right now and make sure he doesn't lose his staff, right? Okay, turn over to Hebrews 3. How would you feel if God spoke directly to you and then used you in such a mighty way? Does God use men in mighty ways now? I would say yes, but it's all tempered in Hebrews 3, verses 1 through 6. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. While Moses was holding the staff above his head, it was all about Jesus. Like, they may not have known his name at the time, 
But while Moses was holding the staff above his head, while the waters, while the wind was coming down and you heard the roar of it, and while the waters were taking a form of almost being congealed so that we could walk through, not on soggy ground, but dry ground, all of that was about Jesus. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. Like, Moses is the house Jesus built is kind of a way you might be able to say that. And Jesus is worthy of more honor. So see, what we're supposed to do is read Exodus 14 and see Moses holding that staff up and the waters parting, and we're supposed to say, Jesus is worthy. Jesus is worthy. That's our response to this text. So when we have our whole Bibles, we can understand more about what we're reading. We're reading about Jesus very much here. Every study we have in the Old Testament, even if it's in Leviticus, there's a point where we say, what does this have to do with Jesus? Because if it doesn't speak first of Christ, it does not speak to the Christian. This has everything to do with Jesus. It's always been about Jesus and it always will be. Now turn to Exodus 15. Moses stretched, uh, I'm going to read through the rest of 14 and into 15. 1421 into 15. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. The Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and a wall to them on their left hand. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them in the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen. And in the morning, watch, the Lord and the pillar of fire and cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic. Why were they in a panic? Because they weren't walking in faith. How did, how did Israel get out of their panic? They moved in faith. Notice the pan they both had panic. One had faith, one did not have faith. And so the result was this panic, and, uh, which clogging the chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. Remember, this was dry ground, as though a desert. Yet their wheels are being clogged um, as, as the Lord moves clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. That's what you want the Egyptians to say. Uh-oh, we haven't just set ourselves against Israel. We've set ourselves against God. This is a problem because he's fighting for them. Sometimes God fights for us. Sometimes God fights through us. Later on with Joshua, we'll see God very much fighting through his people. Here he's fighting for them. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea that the water may come back upon the Egyptians. So he puts his hand back up and flood upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the sea returned to its normal course. The sea returned to its normal course, signifying that what happened was very much not normal. It returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. He threw them into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them, not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their left, on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. It must have been a very sobering time, right? You just walk through that on dry ground, and the guys who didn't do it in faith are all dead on the seashore. Not one of them made it. Not one. 
Think about that. This is a mighty army of strong people equipped to do what you need to do to win. Not one made it. That tells us something about what happened with the sea. It wasn't just it got lower for a while or, or anything. It, 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 this is God's movement, and he, in fact, threw them into that course. And so it says, Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So, because they saw the great power that he used against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord. Now, chapter 15 is a really appropriate transition. They are redeemed, they are delivered, and they are saved, and they sing about it. That's what God's people do. We're going to talk more about why we do that in a few moments, but we sing because God has ordained it as such. Now, uh, look at verse 15, 1a. 1a. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. Now, what must happen for people to come together and sing a song? Yeah. I'm so glad y'all didn't try to go deeper there. Like, that's the exact answer. You have to know the words to the song. And for there to be words to a song, what must have happened before that? Somebody wrote it. And for someone to write a song, what must have happened? God put it in their heart to write that song. And it's particularly Moses here. And so we see, I want y'all to know, this is the first recorded song in Scripture. And to me, that's very exciting. I, I love music. I love worship and song. And to see that we get to look tonight briefly at the first song in, uh, and recorded in the Scriptures is exciting. Uh, it has to be written, and it had to be taught. What goes into writing a good song? We all think might go into writing a good song, as the Bible says. Prayer. Say that again? Prayer. Prayer. Yeah, absolutely. Prayerless songs are usually godless songs, usually. What? Thought. Thought. Yeah. Thought's a big deal. There's something that... Uh, it was uh, John Piper in some book, one of the 50,000 books he's written. Um, he wrote, uh, he talks about the poet lingers. And he talks about how, I mean, I think it's 15% or so, if I'm wrong on that, someone yell, but 15% or so of our word is, is poetry. And poetry is a little bit different from prose and, and from, from maybe facts and, and lists and, and other writing in that it takes a certain discipline. It says, I'm going to sit and I want to capture what's happened here in a way that ex is expressed with the discipline of, of rhyme and the discipline of, of meter and the discipline of truth. And, and he talks about how the poet lingers. The poet doesn't just look at a flower and then write a poem about a flower. The poet looks at the flower and studies it and considers it and looks at it in comparison to other things. And how did it get there? And look at the shapes there. Those are unique shapes. And look at the colors and how they go together. And it's unique. It, you don't... In order to write something that is worthwhile, there must be a lot of observation of that thing. And so 
here we see that in order for them to be singing a song, someone must have sat and written that song, and someone must have written that song as been acted upon by God. And they, they didn't, you don't do it in a haphazard manner. This is an important song. The way that it's written informs us. The content of it informs us today as we sit here. Um, in our context, it seems like songwriting has really lowered its bar. If you just, I'm not going to bash very much, but if you just think of the most popular artists of our time right now, like don't say it out loud, but just think about what musical artist just, just jumps into your head when I say the most popular artist. Now, if you know any of their lyrics, just think about their lyrics for a minute. Like, ooh, baby, baby. Ooh, what? I mean, there's so many songs. What I'm getting at is there are, there's a million-dollar industry of songs that are lame and horrible and weak, and there was no time spent on it. And the, the content of it is weak, and the progression is just the same progression. There's no thought. There's nothing unique about it. It's poppy, and it sells, and that's all that, that people care about with music. And I think that God has a much bigger plan for music than cheap industry standards of low bars that result in crummy, horrible songs. I think God cares about music because he ordains it as a, as a, as a sacrifice of praise is what it's called. It, with, in the Mosaic, well, we'll get to that in a minute. But what I'm getting at is in our context, it seems like songwriting has really lowered its bar, maybe even more so in the Christian music industry. Um, just because you write a song doesn't mean it's a good song, and just because it rhymes doesn't mean it's a good song. Um, this song is the first recorded song in Scripture, and, and it shows us uh, a number of things about good songwriting. Now, we're going to look at the content of this song. Some say the best songs are written from experience. Um, there's two things I want us to consider as we look at this. Some say that the best songs are written from experience. I would say that the realities of our God go beyond our experience. And I would say that truth both trumps experience and truth ex informs experience. So just because I experience something doesn't mean I've got something to write a song about as a Christian. But how God and the truth about God informs my experience is what will result in a song that is not lame. Now, another thing that um, some musicians argue about is, it's funny, I've got a, my, my brother is a, music major um, kind of uh, like Broadway kind of training that he's in right now. And on my wall in my office hangs a thing that says, music is a servant to words. Music is a servant to words. Now, most musicians find that unsavory. Music serves words. So that means without words, music really doesn't have an expression. On my brother's wall, he has a poster that says, where words stop, music begins, or something like that. Or like, music expresses what words cannot, Some, something very dramatic, dramatic like that. And, uh, and they're very different thoughts, but what I want us to see here is that the quality of a song, there is certainly something about the movement of, of notes and, and melodies and, and hooks and, and and the way a song is put together thoughtfully that, that can do something right with words, and it goes beyond just speaking the words, but without the words, the song expresses nothing. Like for you to say, that song speaks to me, but it has no words. What you're saying is, maybe that song gives me hope, 
which is a word. You see that? Like, I can't say, that song goes beyond words. Well, how? You have to use words to say how. Does this making any sense? The, the song is nothing without the words, because you have to have a word to explain even what the song does in your heart and in your mind, and if it's not actually doing something to change you into Christ-likeness and moving you towards God, then it's not worth anything anyway. So, what we're going to see here is a great balance where this song is very Lord-centric while also recounting an experience. The word Lord is repeated 13 times, yet he's talking about his experience. So if you're a writer or a poet or you want to talk about something that's happened in your life or you're really big on your status updates, make sure they're Lord-centric because that, that's what is a good recounting. 1B, Exodus 15. I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. Now, another thing I've heard about good music from bad sources is that good music doesn't offend anybody. It just brings the world together. We hold hands, kumbaya, love, 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 peace, peace, peace. He has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. Uh, just from the first line, we haven't really gotten into the song very much. Uh, who would this song be offensive to? Well, yeah, the widows of the soldiers of Egypt, not to mention the horse and rider, right? Not to mention the horse and rider. Would you write a song attributing your victory in something to Jesus? And talk about who was triumphed over? Think about how that could be offensive. What if we wrote, I mean, uh, the first thing that pops in my mind is Toby Keith writing a song about how God on America's side, whatever. And it's like, well, that's offensive because that means God's not on someone else's side. And we just can't say such things and all that. I, I, I came across an excerpt that, uh, that I printed and left on my desk, apparently. Uh, but what it said was there were two, um, two high school football teams, and they were Christian schools <laughs> going against each other, and one Christian school was all male. And so uh, there's chants going back and forth. And the school that was not all male said, we've got girls over and over and over again. We've got girls. That was their chant. They're, they're both Christian schools, mind you. This Christian school said, their, their student body chanted, we've got Jesus. And they won. The coach of this school wrote a letter, went to the news and talked about just how, how, how much it was so wrong to attribute their win to Jesus because they won. They have Jesus, they have girls. Jesus' school won. They're both Christian schools. But I mean, it, it ended up on, it, it popped up on yahoo.com today. That's how big of a deal it was. Not that yahoo.com has big deals, but um, it made the internet. And so he, he went on to say at the very end, it just said, anytime we bring religious things into victory, it just is never going to end well. And that's how it ended. It was like, 
You're not allowed to ever attribute your win or your victory to Jesus, or else it will be offensive to the one who lost or was triumphed over. Um, so, uh, what is offensive about attributing victory to Jesus? How could that be offensive? How have y'all seen it? Yes, there is implication that the loser must not have Jesus. Okay. Yeah, Jesus is for team A as opposed to team B. Okay. Yeah, you, you, you would be implying that Jesus' belief in Jesus is superior to belief in whatever the losers believe in. <laughs> and not only not in favor of you, but against you. Okay. Does Jesus fight? Just from Sunday's sermon, does Jesus fight? Or has Jesus fought? Maybe I should ask. Is Jesus a long-haired, hippie, Michael Bolton look-alike who just pieced everybody and sips tea? Turn to 1 Corinthians 15. Who would have thought we'd get into such a deep discussion from a song? Philippians 15, or 1 Corinthians 15. Y'all don't know about that other one. I have Jesus on my side. He shows me new books of the Bible. 1 Corinthians 15. Verse 56 says, 1 Corinthians 15, 56, The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what are we talking about victory over in that passage? Death. And why is death a concern? What? It has a sting. And why would death have a sting? Our sin and the wages of sin is death. Okay. So if our greatest victory over our greatest problem, namely eternal death, is attributed to Jesus, what does that say about our smaller victories? Yeah. I, I, that's, it's arrogance to say, Jesus saved me, but I'm generally awesome on my own. That's, that's very arrogant. And so our greatest victory and our greatest problem is attributed to Jesus, and that tells us that our smaller victories are attributed to Jesus. And so I would ask you the question, is it possible to use Jesus in an unloving and mean-spirited way? Was the all-boys school Right. Okay. Yeah. So would you say if they weren't attributing it to Jesus, but rather fairly smartly and <laughs> wisely returning with a chant that's more biblical, 
Can you use the victory, your victory in Jesus in a mean and, un, and, and mean-spirited way? I think we can. I, I think definitely we can, especially if you exclude the other person from what Jesus may have to offer them. Does that make sense? So, there's a, there's a real offensive nature to this song right from the beginning. There are widows whose husbands have died. There are children whose fathers have died. All the firstborn are already dead. And, um, and now a bunch of the greatest warriors in the country are dead. And Moses is writing a song about it saying, I sing to the Lord because he triumphed over the horse and the rider. And our firstborn are still alive. You see how this could be offensive, yet totally true. There's a balance here, and I'm hoping we can get into this. Turn back to Exodus 15. I'm going to read verses 1 through 3, and I want you to um, consider that this, these words, uh, it, this gives me chills when I think about it, but these words were sung by millions of people, like a million or two million people probably. These words were sung. So as I say it, try to think about what it would sound like to have a huge crowd break out in this song and this unifying voice and this voice that is one in Christ. I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him my father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Think about a million redeemed, saved people singing that on dry ground. One sign of a good song is specificity to detail. Keep your finger in Exodus and turn over to Psalm 9. Psalm 9 says, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. To be wholehearted in worship is to recount the deeds of the Lord, and that's what Moses is doing in this first song recorded in Scripture. Are we aware of God's triumphs enough to sing and to write about them? Are we aware of God's triumphs in our lives enough? Are we paying attention to enough to be able to recount the deeds of the Lord as an act of wholehearted worship? Because if you don't have anything like in your mind right now, if you're thinking, I can't think of anything good God's done this week, that's not good. Because that means that we're not being wholehearted in our worship. And it means we're not paying attention to the details that are there to be paid attention to. Wholeheartedness in worship is recounting the deeds of the Lord he is mighty. He is powerful. He's always doing more than we can see. And as believers, we need to do our best in Christ to see what is God doing and how is he moving? Because my life doesn't generally stink as a child of God. And sometimes we act like our lives generally stink as though being a child of God doesn't have much worth. There are many things that keep us from being wholehearted in our worship. And then in verse 3, it says, the Lord is a man of war. Don't miss the connection to Sunday's message. Christ has fought and is now seated. As you strive and struggle through life in a way 
that is faithful, do so considering and seeing how you've been fought for. That, that helps you in your trials. When you're in the middle of a trial, you can think to yourself, my Lord, my Jesus has fought for me in this and is seated on his throne. I have been fought for, and that should be an encouragement to persevere through hard times, keeping our eyes on Christ. Colossians 1, 28 through 29 says, and we talk about this as a staff a lot because it's easy for us to get burned out of everything. I mean, I know some of y'all's schedules, and they're crazy. I know my own schedule, and it's crazy. My kids aren't even old enough to do sports and stuff yet. It can get crazy, but what Colossians 1, 28 and 29 says is, we toil and we struggle and we strive. Those are all words that are probably familiar to you. But it says that we do so with all of his energy, not our own energy. If you're thinking, I'm tired right now. In fact, I know some of y'all are tired right now. There's been like six people fall asleep in the middle of this study. I know y'all are tired. It says we toil and we struggle and we strive with all of his energy that he powerfully works within us. Think about that. That helps us to be Christ-centric in our struggles, knowing that I'm not just trying to ask for some more energy. And in fact, I'm not just even trying to work with some of the en- his energy that he gave me, but I toil and struggle and strive with his energy that he powerfully works within me. So we're not left on our own, and we can be encouraged um, to know that we have been fought for, and we have his energy also that he powerfully works within us as we toil, struggle, and strive. In verse 4, it says, Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. So we, we need to see that cast and sunk signify God's active work in the death of Pharaoh's army. In verse 5, the floods covered them, and they went down into the depths like a stone, like a stone. Moses is writing a song, and he wants you to see that those soldiers and their chariots sunk like stones in the sea. Like you throw a stone in the water and it goes down quick. It's showing God's mighty movement and his power. He's trying to choose words that are careful, using imagery of a sinking stone. This is where the poet lingers. A good recounter doesn't just consider what has happened, but they recount the details of how it has happened and the manner in which it happened. So don't just say, Jesus is Lord, hope you follow him. You say, let me tell you how Jesus is Lord. Let me show you how my God has moved mightily in my life today because he has and he does and he will. Be detailed as you share with people how Jesus has anything to do with your life. Don't be vague. Good recounting is not vague. It is specific. In verses 6 through 8, it says, Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. And the greatness, again, hear millions of people singing this. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them. God's fury is consuming. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. This expression is such that it doesn't want the hearer to miss who is the mighty one and the the extent of the mighty one's might. Look at verse 10 or 11, 9. Eight, seven, I don't know. Nine, the enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind 
The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. It's a good song. Notice how the contrast is made between God and the plans of the enemy. I would ask you, what are some circumstances, what are some ways that we can rightly capture the contrast between God and our circumstances? That's something you need to think about as you leave this study. What are some ways that I can capture the difference between my circumstances and how they seem very hard sometimes and are very hard sometimes and not light, yet the might of my God puts them in proper perspective. That's what he's doing here. He's saying, they said this, they were going to do this, their swords were drawn, they were going to overtake us. And you go, and they're taken care of. He wants Israel to sing a song about how powerful their God is and make sure they don't miss what just happened. Verse 11. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? This is a really good question to ask and to ponder. This is where we're going to stop tonight. It's good for us to sit like the songwriter and consider who is like our God. Like, that line was written for you to actually stop and be quiet and to think about who is like your God. When you hear someone say, who is like our God? Don't you be like, no one, let's go to lunch. Think about it. Take that in. Consider, is Pharaoh like our God? No, he's very different. Am I like our God? Is the source of this problem mightier than my God? Have I given enough thought to the greatness and the power and the might of my God today as I'm moving in worship in my life? Who is like our God? If we stopped every day and asked that and and had moments of clarity and silence and thought and reflection, it would probably give us a much deeper perspective on the different things we face in our lives. Who is like our God? That is a very key question. It's a wonderful line of a wonderful song who is like our God. I want you all to consider that as, as we uh, finish our study and think about that with your families and even consider as a family, maybe we've, we've done it before, the Psalm 9 recounting the deeds of the Lord. In December, we're going to have a time where we just recount God's deeds in thankfulness uh, during that season on Wednesday nights. But I would encourage you all to spend some time as families and spend some time sitting and saying, hey, let's not miss what God's done and how powerful and mighty he is. Let's recount some of the things that we've experienced as a family because of the might of our Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we're thankful for our time tonight. Uh, You are great. You're greatly to be praised. Your greatness is unsearchable. We triumph in our Lord, for you have thrown the horse and rider into the sea. I pray that you would help us to make the connection that Had you not thrown the horse and rider into the sea, we would not be sitting here talking about Jesus. So it's our song too. Our song is the song of a people and our story is the story of a people. We triumph in the fact that you threw the horse and rider into the sea. Lord, help us to know that all of our victory, true victory over things that we need to be victorious over, that that, that's in Christ. And I pray that you would give us gentleness as we communicate that to others, yet boldness and faithfulness that we don't try to keep the part about Jesus a secret. When people ask us, why is your life different? How, how, have you not, how are you able to, to work against these things that are so hard? How are you able to strive in a way that doesn't 
leave you completely overwhelmed and in the ditch, I, I pray, Lord, that you would keep us from hiding the part about Jesus, but that we would gently, lovingly, as it says in Peter, that anytime we are asked about the hope that we have, that we would give an account for the hope that we have, but that we would do so with gentleness and respect. And when we are reviled, not if, let us know that it's good. Let us know that it is better to be reviled for doing good than to hide the part about Jesus. First, I hope we are truly a hopeful people and truly a faithful people and truly a people dependent upon Jesus. And second, I hope that you would show us how to give proper expression to that with our children, with our spouses, with our friends, and with our coworkers. Help us to be better about recounting the deeds of our great God. I'm thankful for our time in Exodus tonight. We thank you for Jesus. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, guys. Y'all have a good night.